Welcome to The Effective Lawyer, a podcast for ambitious attorneys who want to improve their practice. My name is Jack Zenda, and I'll be your host. Hi, and welcome. I'm Kevin Tully, the CMO of Zinda Law Group. And today we're going to flip the tables a little bit. I'm going to be interviewing Jack Zinda, our CEO and founding partner. And we're going to be talking about managing cash at a law firm. Jack, how are you today? I'm great, man. Love to be here. Thanks for taking over and hosting. Yeah, anytime. Excited to do it. Good to know that you're you're still surviving uh, despite the Cowboys loss this year. Oh, talk about a brutal season. You know, I would love to say that I was surprised, but uh, unfortunately, the last two decades have been rough. Ever since, you know, Emmett retired or went to the Cardinals, it's been a rough, rough ride. Well, Jack, I don't know if I ever told you this about myself, but growing up in New England, somehow I was a Cowboy fan as as a youth, probably because of their great run in the 90s. And while I was home over the vacation, I actually stumbled across this photo here of myself and my grandfather, and I'm holding a cowboy helmet, which you, you can't tell about it is that it's filled with cheese and you can pull chips out of the face mask in the front here. Oh, that so, is awesome. I need so one I was, of those. I was thinking about you during the holidays, during that tough time. But, uh, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great photo. I got to get one of those helmets. Speaking of helmets, look at the haircut I had going on back then. It's beautiful. It looks like uh, Toad from Mario. You got to bring it back, man. <laughs> Bull cuts are all the rage. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into it. So uh, by way of background, Jack, tell me, uh, why did you decide to become a personal injury lawyer? When I was in law school, I originally wanted to be a prosecutor. Uh, I had a desire to do something with my law degree that would allow me to be in the courtroom and would feel like I was making a difference uh, in the world. And I really had no idea what uh, personal injury law was or how it worked, uh, or even that that was really an option for myself. Uh, And as my career you know, law school career progressed, and I kind of thought a little bit more of of the way I think, I kind of realized that being a prosecutor may not be the best fit. Um, One, if you have a lot of student debt like I did, it's tough to get by at that initial county attorney's salary. And number two, it didn't feel right, the type of impact I was making in that, you know, you might be putting away low-level drug offenders and things like that. And so, I clerked at a firm that had a uh, small personal injury practice, and I got to work on a couple cases during the summer, and I just saw the difference you could make in someone's life. Uh, It was a real David versus Goliath story. You got to be in the courtroom. You are wearing the white hat, and I just fell in love with that practice area that summer. That's amazing. So when, uh, when did you start your own practice? So I was uh, at a firm from 2006 to 2008. Uh, And we initially started in Round Rock, Texas, which is a suburb of Austin about, you know, now they're kind of the same city almost, they're almost merged. Uh, But at the time, about 15 minutes from Austin uh, with myself and one other partner and an associate. Okay. And so you've been doing it for how many years now? Oh gosh. All right. So I had the firm in 08 and then 2022, so that would be 14 years. Okay. So uh, in addition to being Cowboys fans for some period in our life, we have a similarity in that we've both started businesses. My business was a products company, and in a products business, as most people know, you receive cash 
for goods at, as an exchange on the spot. Tell me how cash is different in a personal injury practice. Yeah, and that actually is one of the areas that a lot of law firms have trouble is dealing with cash. And some of the things that make a personal injury practice and even a law firm uh, different when it comes to managing cash is when you actually receive the revenue and when you can, uh, what's called actualize it, when you can take the cash that you receive and actually turn it into income that you can then put in your uh, operating account. So for a personal injury practice, there's a couple components that come into play. One is you don't get paid for typically between six months to up to two to three years from the date that you're hired by the client. So it's like a giant layaway program. The second piece is the law firm has to spend money in order to get that result in the form of payroll, staff, and then you have to pay outside expenses that we front on behalf of the client. Um, So expert witnesses, deposition costs, uh, things like that. So there's a big cash outlay with every case that you acquire. And it can be tricky because if you, let's say you've got a a really great case for the firm, it's a large wrongful death case involving a trucking company. Well, that case may take two years and you're going to have to spend between $100,000 and $200,000 of your own money in order to get to that result in the end. So it can create a lot of pressures on the law firm and on an attorney when they're trying to start a practice. So going back to your personal story, you're, you're just out of law school, you have these debts, you've worked at a firm for a couple of years, and then you go to start your own firm. How do you make it work from a cash flow perspective? How did, how did you get that started knowing that cash wasn't going to be coming in for, for such a long period of time? You know, and our journey was a little different. At first, we had an hourly practice that was a good supplement uh, that allowed us to float uh, some of the cases we had. The other area that we we did is we got a line of credit with a, a bank. It was a relatively small one at the time. I think, man, it was 2008, so the market had just crashed. Um, and t- lending was very, very tight. Uh, I think we went to like five or six different banks and finally a local bank gave us a line of credit for, I think, $20,000, $25,000. So we're not talking about a lot of money. Um, I also really developed some skills with Excel and QuickBooks and kind of starting to to learn what other businesses do for, for forecasting. But um, on the initial front, having an hourly practice, which was about – 40 to 50% of the revenue we anticipated allowed us to ensure that we were going to at least be able to pay the rent and pay ourselves a very modest uh, salary. Uh, And then the line of credit was a backstop. And then the other piece was making sure that I had a good mix of cases, ones that could resolve relatively soon as we started the practice and ones that might take longer to, to achieve results. So if someone is starting out uh, in their in their law career and they have the end goal of owning their own personal injury practice, what um, what tips and tactics would you give that person to to get started on that journey? And maybe it's starting a practice right away or maybe it's going somewhere else for a little while and then starting a practice. Um, but in terms of jump starting that, what do you recommend? You know, this is going to sound really basic, but I think the first thing you've got to do is make yourself financially literate 
and you really can't outsource that. I don't know any successful law firm owner that is not somewhat financially literate. You don't have to be the best, but you need to understand how much in cash reserves you need to have. So like, what is the amount of money you need to make sure you have in the bank at all times? Uh, you need to be decent at budgeting. Now, you can hire people that can backfill that, that can really be the pros. You can hire part-time bookkeepers, part-time accountants, but there's no substitute for you as the business owner understanding that piece. And, and one of the key things that you've got to do as a lawyer, especially, is you've got to look at running your practice like it's a case. So, and I still do this. I When I look at my list of cases I work on, and now at our firm size, I'm lucky enough, I work on uh, three cases at a time. And then I help my other lawyers with about 20 other cases where I'm more of an advisor on those. Um, but then I have cash flow as a case that I work on. Um, and it's something that I'm looking at every single month. What's the status of it? What are the things that I have to do to make sure we maintain it? So first, make yourself financially literate. There is a great book. I think it's called Numbers 1.0 by Greg Crabtree, potentially. But I'll get the name and put the, the book in the show notes. But that's a really simple book for not just lawyers, but all business owners that really explains how to look at the financial health of your business. So once you get yourself educated, then you have to figure out what's my business model going to be. For personal injury lawyers, there's a couple different approaches you can take. One is you can have a steady stream of income from another revenue source, uh, another practice area. I know a lot of successful personal injury lawyers that have a partner that does criminal law that is cash positive at all times. They also can try cases together. There's a kind of a similar mentality of helping the underdog. Um, I know some that have been successful partnering up with family law attorneys. Uh, I personally think it's better to try to specialize on one practice area. So maybe you have a partner that does another one or you have an associate that can do that area that makes it cash positive. So that's like option one is having a partner or another practice area that is cash positive. You could also try yourself to, to multitask and do two different practice areas. Um, when I was an associate at the first firm I was at, I had to do that uh, because my pay was eat what you kill. And they said, listen, we need you to generate revenue right away. So I did some hourly work on business and civil litigation type things. The second approach you can take is uh, borrowing on a line of credit. So a line of credit is typically with a bank where they give you an amount of money that you can access at any time and you're supposed to pay it back on a regular basis. Our line of credit started very modestly and then grew in every quarter, I would ask for a slight increase. Um, that allowed me to test the waters with the bank to make sure we were still in good standing. And you want to go and talk to your lender and find out, hey, like, what are the things you're looking for here? Develop a good relationship. And if you start small over time, it can build bigger and larger and larger. A tip on that front is I would go to a local community bank the bank that we work with has been just incredible. Their, their name is Our Bank, and it's named after Nolan Ryan. And a lot of people don't know this, but Nolan Ryan has probably made more money in banking than he ever did playing baseball. He started a group of banks, sold them, and now he's doing it again. And uh, it was pretty cool because we were one of their first business customers, and I got to meet him at the grand opening of the bank. 
That's amazing. Which is fast, another fastballs and fast cash. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, you know, my relationship with them has just been incredible. And now we are a large client in a smaller bank, opposed to if I'd gone to Chase. One, I don't know if we would have had the the success in getting access to to cash we needed. And two, we definitely wouldn't be a big fish. I don't know how big you have to be to be a big fish at Chase, but you know it's probably in the billions. Right. Uh, so I would go with the local community bank, find out what they're looking for, and then really try to educate them on how good of a business person you are and your business plan and how, how your business should function. Uh, the third way you can go about getting started on cash is to team up with another law firm that you could work on the cases with, they front the case expenses, and then you put in the sweat equity. Um, And I've seen a lot of lawyers do that successfully. Uh, And it's a win-win because you share the fee with another firm that has the resources to put in case expenses. You're able to keep your overhead really low. Maybe you use their staff or paralegals to help with certain things. Um, You generated the business And so it's a win for the firm you're working with, and you can also learn from them as well. And that's a way to keep cash flow uh, really low in the beginning. So those are some of the tips to get the initial liquidity going. Uh, And that liquidity is just a big word for, you know, cash. Yeah. Great. So you educate yourself, you get that cash coming in. You mentioned uh, the right mix of cases. Can you talk about that a little bit more? And what types of cases were you looking for at that point in your career? That's a great question. So the first thing you have to figure out is, on average, how long will the case that I'm working on take to fund? So some cases you know are going to take a really long time compared to others. Uh, So, for example, a car wreck case, the time to resolve that might be six to nine months. Whereas a wrongful death case against a trucking company is probably going to be closer 18 months to two years because you're going to have to go that much further into litigation. And there's other types of cases that are in between. Now, we've resolved trucking cases in nine months in the past, but you want to play on the law of averages. And the other piece on the mix of it that that I'm looking at is what is the source of recovery that we're going against the insurance company policy? And then what do I think the harms are to the client? And is it a case where the insurance company is going to feel pressure to pay up sooner rather than later? So if I have a case with, say, a $100,000 insurance policy, and I have a client with 50000 in medical bills, I know the insurance company is going to want to resolve that case pretty fast, um, which gives us the ability to say, okay, this case is going to resolve more quickly than these over there. And and that's where you can get into trouble if you have too many large cases and you don't have a cash plan because you're going to have to wait two years to get, get paid on those. This podcast is presented by Zinda Law Group, a nationwide personal injury firm. For over 10 years, the experienced lawyers at ZLG have been partnering with outside counsel across the United States on all types of personal injury and wrongful death cases. With over 30 attorneys, Zinda Law Group has paid out millions in referral and joint venture fees since 2015. To learn more about partnering with Zinda Law Group, please email us at referrals at 
We'll schedule a time for you to meet with Jack Zinda or one of our trial lawyers to discuss your case. I know a lot of business owners have funny, funny or interesting stories about cash flow woes from the early days. Uh, any, any stories that come to mind for you? Yeah, I remember we had a, a bookkeeper that'll go unnamed. And uh, this is like one of the first times I really started learning about how to manage cash on a really intimate level was, uh, you know, at the time we had a minimum cash balance of $20,000, which is like nothing. That's kind of sad that that was our minimum cash balance, but that was it. It's like, don't ever let the operating account get below $20,000. And I'd settled a case, which at the time for me was a, was a, a great hit you know, $100,000 resolution. So, wow, we're going to get a $40,000 attorney fee. And it goes into our operating account. And I check the next day and our balance is below 18000 And I, I tell our bookkeepers, like, hey, what, what happened? You know, I'm, I'm concerned. Did you not put the, the fee in? Is it not run? Like, why is the balance so low? It's like, well, I'd been saving up all the bills we had uh, and I got behind on paying them. So this is like three months worth of bills. <laughs> so I immediately wow. learned like I need to be on top of the bills uh, and I need a better bookkeeper. <laughs> Those two things. Um, and so from that point forward, like I checked the operating account every day and had kind of a process where I looked at the budget, where we're at with, with those things. So tell me about that early financial team. Is it, is it just a bookkeeper? Do you have a, a CPA? What, what are you, what are you doing there uh, in terms of financial help? I think, I think it's really important that you have a bookkeeper and, uh, and I think you can get by with a part-time person. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you're pretty financially literate yourself, you could probably get by with someone that is an overseas part-time bookkeeper. If you're not financially literate or you're, you're kind of weak in that area, I would definitely get someone who knows what they're doing. Uh, and you could probably get by with someone at, you know, 10 hours a week, uh, initially, but you've got to have a bookkeeper. I think it's a huge mistake also because we deal with trust accounts, right? If you make one mistake in a trust account, that could be your law license. Right. Um, the other thing that I think you want to do is always maintain check signing controls only with people you absolutely trust. Um, I think sometimes law firms get into trouble by giving too many people check signing authority um, that don't have the same relationship that an attorney does to a trust or operating account and then get sloppy with that. And it can lead to, you know, getting disbarred, losing your law license and, and all of those things. So one of the fundamentals of managing cash for any business is, is knowing what your costs are. When you're taking in cases, how are you anticipating the costs that will go into those cases? So we actually have a pretty cool method that we've developed over the years. And uh, we use a software program that we developed that helps us analyze this and, and predict what our cash is going to be. We call it the fee predictor. And so whenever a case signs up, the attorney puts an initial value on the case. They say, okay, I think this case, day one, you know, spitballing with the limited facts I know now is worth, let's say, you know, half a million dollars. Um, that then ties into what the anticipated fee on the case is going to be. And then we know on average how long that case would take to resolve. Uh, 
So we can see if it was, say, 10 months, okay, that case for half a million dollars will resolve for half a million in 10 months, and that's a $200,000 fee. And we tell our lawyers to be conservative on their estimate because we always want to overshoot our prediction. Now, obviously, that changes, right? Because you don't know that much in the beginning. So part of the attorney's case review that they do once a month is they update that anticipated value of the case. And so it gives you a rolling uh, average of your predicted fees. What's important to think about with that is to know it's just an average because every case is different and you have to have enough cases for the information to really be valuable. If you only have five cases, one may take two years, one may take two months, and one may take six months. Right. Um, and I'm bad at math because it's only three cases. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's pretend I said there was two more. Um, and so, but once you get to enough cases, and right now we have uh, 30 attorneys, and so enough attorneys have enough cases to where the law of averages comes into play, and it gives right. us a pretty solid prediction. The other thing we do on our cases is we have a a rule that we like to follow, follow on case expenses. So every case gets allocated a certain percentage of anticipated value that can go to case expenses. Now we can break that rule if we think we need to on a certain case, but that ensures that you're not going to spend more than the case can warrant, which avoids you having a situation where the client ends up in a bad spot at the end of the case. And it also puts in some guardrails for the attorneys because we like to give the attorneys autonomy on, you know, how they want to spend money on their cases based on their experience level. And so if an attorney knows I only have 50000 to spend on this case, I need to decide what depots to take, what experts to use. In another case, they may have 300000 they can spend. Um, doesn't mean they just spend it for spending sake, but maybe they could do uh, two or three focus groups instead of one. Maybe they could hire four experts instead of two. Um, so it gives the attorney some guardrails there. Now, when we get to revenue, as it gets closer to becoming money into our account, we also do a secondary prediction. So each attorney is supposed to look six months out and predict what cases they think are going to hit and win, and then give it a, a percentage of likely accuracy. And as it gets closer to present day, it should be more and more accurate. So, for example, month one is supposed to be just cases you've resolved. So that should be about 100% accurate. I'm going to get this case as revenue in the door. Month two would be cases maybe I'm going to mediation with this month. Month three would be ones I'm anticipating getting a demand or going to mediation in month two and so on and so forth. And then we give each attorney a percentage accuracy of how they uh, did on that. Uh, and so we can kind of weigh against it. And if anybody wants to, to talk about this or would like examples of the spreadsheets we use, just uh, reach out to me and I'm happy to, to share that with the group. That's great. Is that the same process that you use to forecast cash flow? It's part of it. So like that's when I'm looking at cash flow, uh, what we look at is, you want to first make sure you have a budget. That's critical. If you don't have a budget, it's very difficult to do a cash flow prediction. The budget doesn't have to be extremely detailed. You just need to know, okay, I'm going to spend this much on payroll, on marketing, and whatever big expenses you have like rent. 
Then you lay across, okay, here's how much revenue I anticipate getting. Here's how much expense is going to be in the following month. So that prediction we just did gives me the revenue piece. Right. And then I've got the expense piece. And you don't want to forget about bonuses. If you have attorneys that earn bonuses on the cases at our firm, that's a pretty substantial part of our uh, expense. So you want to make sure you're calculating that into it. And then that'll give you a net income. And then you want to take out taxes. And I just assume, you know, use the same percentage across the board that's a little higher than what it would actually be. And then that gives you your net cash difference. And you want to consider, are there any other cash expenditures that wouldn't be in your P&L? For example, if you're going to take money out as the business owner, that would affect cash. If you want to pay down your line of credit early, that would affect cash. And then whatever's left over goes into your cash prediction for the following month. And then you just repeat that for each month. And I think it's really helpful, especially when you're starting out, to look six months out. I look at cash and this is going to sound a little crazy, we look at a prediction weekly for the next four weeks and then monthly for the next six months. And I look at it uh, every week. I've got a great team on the finance side and they put together a report for me. And that's just part of my routine. Every Monday is looking six months out on cash. Great. Um, so cash can come from attorney's fees, but cash can also come from other places. And you've mentioned to me uh, and working together, some interesting alternative revenue sources that you've seen uh, firms use as part of their business model. Can you describe a couple of those places that are sort of more untraditional where cash can come from? For example, uh, referring out cases um, and sort of getting cash flow coming from referred out cases or... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that makes total sense. I was trying to think through a second. I was like, alternative sources, like are we selling drugs? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, you know, referring out cases and joint venturing cases is one area that can, uh, can generate revenue, especially for a firm that's starting out, you know, and with the internet now, our firm, for example, gets calls from all over the country uh, in states that it wouldn't make sense for us to travel to because maybe the case isn't uh, got significant enough damages to where it would warrant us charging the client for travel. Um, and so we refer that to another firm. We give them some insights, tips. We give them our resources. Uh, we try to stay in contact with the client for the uh, firm we work with. And then we get a referral fee on the case. And that can be kind of a nice passive revenue stream that can help uh, buffer some of those times that you are uh, maybe not hitting all the cases you want. And if you just get in the habit of that early in your career of referring out the cases and making sure you're tracking those, it can have a big impact later on. Great. Are there any rules of thumb, any numbers that you use to kind of measure health when it comes to cash flow? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I also want to make sure I hit how we use the line of credits. I think that can be really critical as well to uh, new law firms, especially new plaintiffs firms. So we use a number of two times our expenses, excluding bonuses. And the reason I exclude bonuses is because if we have a killer month, bonuses are going to be high, but then revenue will be high as well. And if we have a terrible month, bonuses will be low. Um, and revenue below as well. So we kind of exclude bonuses from our, our needs on that. And then if we get above that number by 
a certain percentage, we're going to either put that into a savings account or some sort of investment account. And if it goes below that number, we're going to invest back into the organization through the line of credit or through that savings or investment account. So you're kind of always keeping it at uh, an even keel. And that makes sure, I mean, honestly, the one thing you cannot substitute is being able to sleep at night as a business owner. I've learned the hard way, no amount of money can make up for that. And sometimes the larger you get, the more scary cash flow issues can be, especially if you're in a contingency fee practice. So that habit can really help being able to go to sleep at night and not, uh, you know, have three shots of bourbon. <laughs> uh, well, this has been great. What other, what other advice do you have? What other points do you want to hit when it comes to managing cash flow? Uh, I would say on the case expense side, you know, we use our line of credit in a very disciplined way. Um, when we borrow money from the line of credit, it is for case expenses. And when we pay it back, we pay it back immediately. Like there's not a, an end of month. We do it on a case by case basis. That discipline has really ensured that we're using it for the right reasons and we don't overextend ourselves because it's very easy, especially, you know, we're talking in 2022, cash is very easy to get access to right now. And, you know, just like student debt, you know, it's a lot easier to take it out than it is to pay it back. So. Right. I'd be very disciplined about your approach to using your line of credit. And the second piece is, you know, just make this part of your discipline. If you truly want to have a successful practice, whether it's one attorney or 10 of something you are consistently looking at, because I see a lot of attorneys that are stressed out that have marital problems that, you know, their firms go under when, if they just built this as part of their discipline, they would be very successful. Or get a law partner that's really strong in this area. If you're just like, I hate numbers, I hate financials, work with a law partner you really trust that loves it. You know, But I don't think there's a, a substitute for the business owner understanding financials. I don't think you can be a business owner and not do that. And that may be a sign that maybe it's not for you. Maybe you're better off working at a firm. Right, right. Well, Jack, that was great. Thank you for joining me. Um, anything else you want to leave the audience with before we go today? Where can they reach out to you and, and contact you for, for more information? Yeah, just email me anytime at jack at zindalaw.com. Uh, you can reach me at 512-246-2224. And I love to share information. I love to help new attorneys, experienced attorneys, and I love to exchange ideas. And usually when I do that, I learn a lot in the process as well. So I just encourage anybody listening to this that wants some advice, feel free to reach out. Thanks so much, Jack. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Effective Lawyer. You can learn more about our team and find other episodes of our podcast at zindalaw.com. As always, we'd appreciate that you subscribe, rate, and review the pod. Thanks.